Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is David Miller, former mayor of the city of Toronto and author of the book Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis. The book came out in late 2020 and argues that cities are in many ways central to climate change action and are in fact some of the best equipped jurisdictions to take on the challenge. David draws from his own experience as a mayor in reflecting on these issues, but he also draws on lessons learned through his work with the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group. The book includes anecdotes and lessons learned from a number of municipalities all across the globe. And I have to say, personally, it was tremendously refreshing to read about these very tangible actions when so much of the climate conversation can feel intractable. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more from David about his motivation in putting the book together and what he discovered along the way. Stay with us. David, thank you so much for joining me on Resources Radio. It really is very nice to talk with you today. Kristen, I really appreciate uh, being on the show. Uh, Good luck and continued success with the podcast. Thank you. Great. Well, before we really talk about the book, which is the real subject of our conversation today, but I would like to learn a little bit more about you personally. So what path led you to the mayorship in Toronto? And maybe in parallel, what led you to your interest in climate change? Well, there's two paths to my interest in climate change, my path to politics. And I, I think my the values I have deeply embedded me, in me as a result of my experiences as a young boy growing up in a small English village um, where there were two real lessons. And I didn't realize them at the time, of course, but they've stuck with me for the rest of my, my life. The first of them was about social justice. You know, my friends were, my mom was the teacher uh, and I'm, I was an only child of a single mom. And my uh, friends were the the sons of uh, a family who lived in council housing, social housing by American standards. And even at the age of seven, you could see how different the opportunities were by class. England was a very class society. And that value of, of social justice has stuck with me uh, my entire life. And it comes from that experience. Um, and it's connected very much to climate action. And I, th- I think the second thing and again, I didn't realize at the time, but people lived a very environmentally sustainable lifetime then. We didn't throw anything away, for example. Now, that was because people had no money. But they actually fixed things. Mm-hmm. And they didn't throw them away. And if you couldn't fix it, uh, a man called the Rag and Bone Man would come around and he would fix it and sell it to somebody else. We lived in a farming village. You know, on one side, of the, we lived in the school, literally. And on one side of us was... Uh, dairy and across the street was an egg farm and the other part uh, across the street was a a church and that was more or less the village and the farms uh, use standards that today we would call organic Uh, no pesticides you know free-range chickens and so forth and everybody had a garden we had a garden vegetable garden we actually a lot of our food came from the vegetable garden we had a compost heap so we created very little waste and we lived very much in connection with nature. And I think those values stuck with me for life. And so when I got interested in municipal politics, which was partly because of my career as a lawyer, my clients were uh, had very significant disputes with the city. And people said to me, why don't you stop complaining about it and do something? Um, 
And so I got involved in municipal politics as an advocate and then as a city councilor and then as mayor. It was really about the expression of those two values in ways that directly affect people's lives, which is what is interesting about city politics. It's very direct, very tangible, and, and very real. And I, I think it was those experiences as a young person that really led to the values that I tried to express through my political career. Mm-hmm. Well, great. And I think that really does come across in the way that you talk about the power of cities to address climate change in the book. And so, um, but before we talk kind of about the substance of the book, I want to start by asking you about the title of the book. And just as a reminder for our listeners, it's called Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis. And you can tell I, I sort of emphasized a few words there. It's a title that conveys a wonderful sense of optimism, but I wanted to just press you a little bit on that and ask why you chose the words solved and fixing in this context. And I ask because those feel like pretty definitive words for a problem that's so thorny, and I think many people would argue is far from being solved. So tell me more about that title. I chose solved, and it was a bit uh, deliberately provocative, but it's for a really fundamental reason. The, The climate crisis is real. People, as you said in the introduction, uh, at least before the most recent American election, were really losing hope. Um, And people don't know the story of what's happening in cities. They just don't. That's why I wrote the book. But if you look at the very big picture, uh, in about 2008, 2009, for the very first time in human history, more people lived in urban areas than lived in rural. So from the dawn of human civilization until 10 years ago, more or less, we are a predominantly rural population. Now we're predominantly urban, and that's only that trend's only accelerating. It's also where the emissions are. It's also where most of the world's economy is. And uh, I know because of, of the work I've been privileged to be in, involved in, both as mayor and since, that there are solutions happening in great cities somewhere on the key areas to make a difference that if we do them at scale and pace over the next decade, will put the world on a path to fix the climate crisis. So from that perspective, the solutions are there. And that's, that's why I use the provocative way of putting it, solved, rather than saying something like we have the solutions. Um, right, or we're sort of in progress, but yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. we're in the middle of the beginning. Because, yeah. <laughs> because I, I really believe, um, and I know, that if you take those solutions and innovations, not new inventions, things that are already happening somewhere and do them everywhere, Uh, we will, in fact, have got us on a path to uh, more or less having global emissions by 2030, which is what science tells us we need to do. So from that perspective, uh, the world's great cities are indeed fixing the climate crisis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and and you're already hinting at sort of one of one of the things that struck me in the book early on, you note that you're often asked why cities. And, um, you know, you've made a strong case that Certainly, there are huge population centers. They now house a lot of humanity. Also, I think it's fair to say that addressing climate change will require action at every level. But one thing that I was kind of struck by, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was your sense that cities actually have some strong comparative advantages in moving on climate, even compared to other jurisdictions. So can you talk me through some of those arguments? Yes. I mean, in addition to fact the fact that that's where the bulk of the problem is, cities institutionally um, are required to act 
you know, that national governments and subnationals like states and, and provinces in, in Canada have responsibilities to legislate. You know, it's policy. Cities run things. They actually do things. And the nature of their responsibilities are very aligned to addressing climate change. They're responsible for urban forests, for example. They're responsible for building standards and often for building codes. They're responsible for transportation networks, for public transport, for waste management. Many of them are responsible for electricity generation. And the ones that aren't are still responsible uh, often for purchasing huge amounts of electricity. They're responsible for planning. So they can decide whether a city is going to grow in a way where it's easy to walk and cycle around or is going to grow in a way that requires uh, a car. So you combine the nature of their responsibilities with the fact that they, um, there's an expectation from residents of cities of action. And you've got a real crucible for using those responsibilities to act on climate change. And there's one more thing. And that is that many cities in the world are governed by a directly elected mayor. Mm-hmm. And that mayor has the ability to implement. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important, uh, subtle, but really important uh, governance difference uh, in many, many places in the world between city governments and national and state governments. You have that almost unique combination of being able to set policy, implement it, have a mayor who can drive action, um, and have the responsibilities for a whole range of things that touch on the environment and particularly on greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Thanks for kind of laying that groundwork. And um, well, the book is it's full of a lot of success stories about reducing carbon emissions in cities in four major sectors, if I can call them that. Uh, the first is energy and electricity. Uh, the second is buildings and then transportation and waste. And I'd certainly welcome the chance to talk about any of those. Um, but I did want to start, even before we dive in there, I wanted to ask you about the chapter that frames them all, which, as you just referenced a little bit, is the importance of, of planning. And I have not myself experienced too much of sort of the city planning process, um, but you really make a case in the book that it's a very important part of laying the foundation for what comes. So can I ask you to just give a quick overview of what your experience has been with the city planning processes, you know, how that might differ across cities, and, and in particular, how the incorporation of climate into those planning processes has really come to life in recent years? You know, Kristen, it's a good thing you read the book so thoroughly because in my answer to your last question, I missed a really important point, and it's the one you're you're making now. Um, pretty much all major cities have responsibility for planning from the perspective of where do buildings go, how large should they be, you know, do you build in a sprawl-like fashion like Houston, for example, or in a very dense fashion like New York, what are the transportation systems that are going to connect buildings? Where is industry? Where do people live? Those kind of planning issues, you know, where do you put bike lanes? How wide should the sidewalks be? And it's very rare for cities not to do that. Houston's one of the few cities I know where the city doesn't have zoning authority. <laughs> right, sort of notorious for it, yeah. <laughs> well, and you can see, you know, in uh, now that it's it's had over the past six or seven years, I think three floods that should have happened once every 500 years, you can see how unwise it was not to have some, some planning there. But the, the importance of this is not just that cities have the responsibility for planning, but 
planning is something that has to be done in partnership with neighborhoods and with citizens. Um, typically legally, cities are usually mandated to really engage with their residents to build urban plans. So it was very natural for cities to think about 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years out and do it in partnership with their residents. They're not the only people who have a say, you know, the development industry and, and building owners all have a say, but residents have a key say. And because cities think that way, the necessity to plan for climate uh, is a natural. And uh, uh, there's another thing about this, um, which is that in many of the major cities, we certainly see in New York, Hurricane Sandy, for example, in New Orleans, Houston, and others, there have been catastrophic climate-related events like major storms or wildfires near LA that have really reinforced to mayors the urgency to act on these issues. And the residents demand action. All, all the polls show this. People really want action. So you've got this really um, positive connection of a history of knowing how to plan, being able to use that history of skills to develop a climate plan, and knowing how to do that in partnership with the people who live in your community, because that's what you do all the time, even if it's over a, you know somebody wanting to subdivide their house into to two new houses, for example. It's done all the time. And so cities have taken that knowledge and they have done uh, greenhouse gas emission inventories, determined where their inventories are, and then analyzed what they need to do in concert with science to address the problems. And because they work with people, they've also endeavored to do that in a way that meets the needs of their communities as well. And, and that becomes a very robust kind of planning framework. Los Angeles and New York, for example, both call their climate plans Green New Deals. So not only do they have a plan to meet emissions targets, and we can talk a bit more uh, about how you get there if, if that's of interest, but the plan also thinks about how does that impact on communities, particularly equity-seeking neighborhoods or groups, and how are they going to benefit from the reduction in emissions. You know, are the greenhouse gas emitters the same things that are causing air quality problems? So you'll get positive health outcomes. Will people have the new jobs that are gonna come, let's say with installing solar panels to clean the energy system? Will those jobs go to people in low income communities or not? Cities are developing plans that answer all those questions. And that's partly why they're able to be successful on these climate issues because they're, they're meeting multiple needs uh, that people have expressed to city council and the mayor. That's fascinating. And, and you know, the longer that I work in, uh, in proximity to climate change issues, the more I'm aware of what you've just mentioned, how much those issues are interconnected. And it's just, it's really interesting to hear how your take on how cities are actually set up to look at those intersections in ways that are perhaps more effective. So thank you for that, for that commentary. I definitely want to get to some of the the examples that you provide, because they really are rich and wonderful and pretty inspiring. So let me go by sectors here, and maybe I can start with buildings. Um, there are two chapters of the book that focus on buildings, and certainly 
you know, buildings can represent a significant portion of cities' overall emissions footprint. Um, I imagine that, you know, many of our listeners will be familiar with strategies like improving insulation and installing more energy efficient windows. Uh, But I also imagine that there are a number of kind of outside the box ideas that you've come across. So can you share some of the ways that cities have been approaching uh, reducing building emissions that you've have really stuck with you? Sure, I'll go to three, um, but I should preface it by saying uh, C40, where uh, I'm affiliated with now, uh, did a study a few years ago um, with uh, Arup engineers and followed up with a study of McKinsey. And when you take the two together, it shows that about 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to cities, and they're predominantly in four areas, uh, how you generate electricity, how you heat and cool buildings, transportation, and waste. And the, one of the reasons I like to talk about buildings is um, it's not where people immediately go. People often, in my experience, you know, if I give a public address on this, for example, um, will talk about uh, solar panels or electric cars or public transport. All of those things matter. But in the really built-up cities like New York and Toronto, far and away, the biggest source of greenhouse gases is what we use to heat and cool the buildings, typically but not always natural gas. So if we want to achieve uh, what science tells us we need to, which is about an overall halving of emissions by 2030 on the way to net zero at or before 2050, you want to start where the problem is, which is in buildings. And uh, as you say, there's lots of interesting parts to this, uh, energy retrofits, you, you know, high efficiency windows, uh, sometimes district heating and cooling can, can help uh, lower energy consumption. But uh, if you step back, there are some really interesting innovations to drive change quickly. And New York's my first example, because under two mayors, they've done really interesting things. Under Mike Bloomberg, um, you know, it comes out of business, kind of free market. He decided, rather than use regulations, he would require commercial buildings over a certain size, because that's where most of the emissions are in the big buildings, to post their energy consumption so that their tenants would know what it was. And the reason for that is that typically in a commercial building, the tenants are responsible for paying for the energy consumption. But the building owner is responsible for the cost of, you know, installing energy efficient boilers, for example. So there's what's called a split uh, incentive. And um, the results of that posting were quite extraordinary. The Empire State Building alone spent way over $100 million U.S., on an energy retrofit of the entire building, the most iconic building in the world, arguably, and then did another one. And the, the owner of it said, you know, I know this helps save energy for climate change, but it's also making me a lot of money because my tenants are prepared to pay more for better space that costs less to operate. So it was very effective in buildings like the Empire State Building. In more ordinary buildings, I think they call them Class B in New York, there was less interest because the tenants tended to stay there less time and the owners sell the buildings a lot. So they, that work didn't happen in those kinds of buildings. So what Mayor de Blasio did was pass an ordinance that required buildings to dramatically lower their greenhouse gas emissions between now and 2030. 
um, and it's a mandate. And to me, that's uh, world-leading because most of the buildings that are going to exist in 2030 and a good proportion of the ones that are uh, going to exist in 2050 already exist. So if you mandate that they have to become energy efficient um, with requirements about emissions, the buildings can choose how they do it, and the city has set up processes to help people know and learn, uh, uh, help building owners know and learn the best available techniques. But the mandate really forces action. It helps create, they estimated, tens of thousands of jobs because it uses a lot of labor, uh, often good union jobs, to work on these kinds of retrofits. So that's one real approach, New York. State-of-the-art approach on new buildings is in Vancouver, Canada. And the fact is, new buildings can be built to net zero, even net positive now economically, but very, very few places require that. Vancouver has something called a step code in which between 2018 and 2030 would force all new buildings by 2030 to be net zero quite rapidly on a rapid increase over the 10 years. Um, and it's all technically feasible. And what Vancouver has done is they use their Economic Development Commission to work with the suppliers, for example, Windows, as you mentioned, to help them change in the hopes that because they're ahead of everybody else, suppliers that are in Vancouver and, and British Columbia will be able to supply all over North America and Asia these highly advanced building materials. And there's, there is literally no technical reason today why any city in the world can't do what New York and Vancouver are doing, require new buildings to, to reach net zero and require old buildings to dramatically improve their energy efficiency. I think those are the state of the art. Um, the most interesting though might be Tokyo, which in Canada we've you know had a big debate about whether we should have uh, cap and trade or whether there should be a price on carbon or how you know nationally you, you address things. Tokyo created its own cap-and-trade system on buildings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fantastic because it's a brilliant example of what a city can do. You know, Tokyo is a big city. The governor is an extremely important uh, position uh, in, in uh, Japanese politics. Governor Koiki, the, the current governor, is a real live wire. I'm a great admirer of her. Um, but their cap-and-trade system not only worked, it was fascinating because... Um, Culturally, in Japan, uh, apparently it's not really seen to be contravening a law, even if it's, you know, cap and trade. So there were very few trades because everybody responded to the law by improving their buildings so they didn't have to <laughs> trade. Oh, that's wonderful and makes me love Japan well, even more than I already do. So, yeah. Doesn't it give you hope? Like it just Yeah, it does. I'm, yeah. I'm sitting here with a big smile on my face and it's, Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, you commented on the optimistic tone of my book. It's because of these kinds of things. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Well, so I do I, and and I really want to encourage people to to delve into the uh really the wealth of these kinds of of bits and pieces. I hate to call them stories because there's so much more than that, but these kinds of um, reflections that are in the book. So let's talk about a different 
uh, sector for just a second, and one that you briefly mentioned before, um, but I, I want to call out transportation. And I want to ask you about kind of this intersection of transportation and economics and also current events. Um, so you, you know, you're clearly a strong advocate for public transportation. You definitely point to its value in cities worldwide. But, but I know there are often you know, really massive costs associated with with building public transportation systems from scratch, and and the viability of, of even the systems that exist now has really been stressed to the limit by by the pandemic. And so, given all of these factors, the cost, the issues that are sort of staring them in the face, but yet and yet the importance of them, where are the growth opportunities for public transportation that you see, whether that's geographically or technologically? Well, you start with buses. And I think buses are a bit like buildings. They're a bit unloved. But you start with them because they're relatively cheap, they're easy, and they're flexible. And from a climate perspective, there's a huge opportunity to change our diesel bus fleets to electric, which will have significant health benefits for people who live near busy bus routes from the reduction in NOx and other things that, that come out of diesel fuel. Um, and uh, will help create jobs for manufacturers who are creating this industry, uh, and of course will, you know, dramatically lower emissions. I mean, for me, great cities don't work without a great transit system. You you can't have a city with the densities of London or Berlin or Shanghai or Beijing or even Toronto, uh, certainly New York, without uh, a great electric-based transit system with a lot of rail to it. It just won't work. And yes, of course, there are challenges right now coming out of COVID, but if you go on any of those transit systems I just mentioned, there are a lot of people still taking it because that's their transportation. You know, when, when mom and I immigrated to Canada, we actually came to Ottawa and lived in my uncle's basement, like a typical immigrant story. And uh, she didn't want to drive in Canada because of snow, uh, and I can't blame her. Um, yeah. um, so, you know, we took the bus everywhere. Ottawa has a very good bus system. Um, it has bus rapid transit. And in places the size of Ottawa, like cities below, let's say, 500,000, bus rapid transit is an excellent alternative to create rapid transit in a really economical way. In a, in a bigger city like Toronto or New York or the others I mentioned, you do need rail-based uh, transit, uh, preferably run by clean electricity, but you can rapidly turn a public transport system from a good thing to a great thing through uh, electrifying all elements of it. And the good news is this is eminently possible. Um, you know, Shenzhen, uh, China, um, uh, its entire bus fleet is electric now, all of it. Um, we're a little bit more timid in North America. Uh, Toronto is doing a pilot with 60 buses. New York's doing a pilot. I think Boston's doing a pilot. But we'll get there. A few years ago, uh, when cities started working on this issue, manufacturers said to them, we're at least a decade out. And, and cities and mayors mm -hmm. said to them, no, no, no. You make electric buses, we're going to buy them. And we're going to start putting in the procurement rules. And we've now ended up with multiple electric uh, bus manufacturers, and there are uh, 66,000 electric buses on the streets of C40 cities alone when 
a few years ago, um, there were literally none. And, you know, in China, it's used as an economic development strategy because they're the world's biggest electric bus manufacturer. And it's when those things come together, and I've mentioned that a couple of other times, when you know mayors are able to think about meeting the needs of people, jobs, and doing the right thing to climate, you really have a solution. And I'm, I personally, I, love, I live across the street from Subway. I take it all the time. I very much believe in light rail and streetcars. They have a place. Um, at the same time, we need to move to low-hanging fruit, particularly moving out of COVID and uh, uh, making all new bus purchases electric will make a really rapid difference as we take the time to build out the harder infrastructure like new subway lines and uh, new light rail. Mm-hmm. I feel like we should call this episode Hug a Bus. Somehow I'm, I'm feeling very inspired to get back on my own bus lines, which are actually my regular uh well, were my regular commuting method here in Washington. I will note just a reflection on the experience here in D.C. is that sometimes what's held buses back from even more adoption, and they are, you know, at least pre-pandemic, very widely used here, but was that people got frustrated that they still weren't moving any faster than the pace of traffic. And so just really quickly, I'd be curious if you have reflections on, you know, have bus lanes been an important part of the conversation too, so that they really provide an advantage over just being in a car? Yes, um, absolutely. And uh, you make a really good point. And uh, you're such a gracious host, I should have made this point. <laughs> so th- thank you for pointing out subtly that I, I hadn't. Um, the, the challenge for uh, public transport, particularly by bus, but it's true, can be true with streetcars and trams as well, depending on how they're set up, is that if you run in mixed traffic, one person in one car wanting to turn left can hold up a bus or a streetcar, you know, with 60 or 120 people on it. Um, and it's just not, it's not efficient from a transportation perspective. If you think about transportation moving people as opposed to moving inanimate objects, it doesn't make sense from a transportation perspective. And of course, it makes the bus and, and streetcar service far less viable. So bus lanes, for me, that are independent and physically separated are highly effective. And the state-of-the-art example for this uh, is not really from North America. Although there's a couple of good examples like Ottawa, Canada, but Curitiba, Brazil, who, who really pioneered separate busways and they created new kinds of stops at the time where you would pay um, at the stop and then just climb on the on the bus. That's more routine now, but at the time, uh, Mayor Lerner, Mayor Jaime Lerner, uh, did this. It was it was considered revolutionary, and people on those buses move much faster than traffic, even though they have to stop regularly. And and to me, that's part of the solution. You have to make electric buses make transport clean. The buses feel good. They're quiet. They smell nice. But if you add to that busways in particular, or at least bus lanes that are properly enforced, so the buses move faster than rush hour traffic, it then becomes really attractive for people and they will actually prefer public transport. And, and anywhere that has really good public transport that runs in its own right of way, you can see from the studies that people who live relatively near it or only have to take one bus to connect to it will prefer the public transport as long as it has that kind of ability not to get stuck in rush hour like uh, like cars do. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that certainly resonates with my experience, very much so. Um, David, there are so many more questions that I feel like I both could and potentially should ask you, but I know we're nearing the end of our the substantive part of our conversation. So I will move us into our, our closing feature. Um, I just want to thank you again for talking with us on Resources Radio today. And uh, again, the book is Solved. Here, I'm going to pick up my hard copy here. Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis. So, okay, let me close with top of the stack and uh, ask you if you might want to recommend to our listeners uh, some more good content that they might want to explore either on this topic or potentially on another topic of interest. So David, what's what's on the top of your stack? Um, well, uh, Thomas Piketty, who's um, a familiar name yep uh, a bit uh, slow to read but I think makes extremely important points um, about uh, the way the modern economic systems have really failed people and I, I it's inextricably linked with climate change from my perspective because how the economic system matters uh, enormously so I have um, Piketty at the top of my stack um, about half open um, and uh, the other uh, <laughs> book I'm reading oh this is embarrassing um, the other <laughs> book I'm reading is The Beginner's Guide to Bicycle Riding fantastic I, I, <laughs> just in time for spring to come around again no I, I'm blushing I am I just because I have to be clear I'm not a beginner at bike riding I you know <laughs> okay. I am a mature adult I did learn when I was a child in fact in England before we came to Canada but uh, what's interesting about it for me I, I bought a bike uh, just after the pandemic shut down March 21st last year I've ridden it every day and riding it through the fall and winter you discover that you need maintenance. So I'm, I'm learning how to properly take care uh, of my bike so I can uh, stay fit and, and stay uh, mentally vigorous in the middle of the pandemic. That is fantastic. And I realize it would be off topic for Resources Radio, but I would love to have you back on to teach the beginner maintenance people among us. I also bought a bike just as everything was getting started. So good tip. Good tip. Um, fantastic. Well, David, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And hopefully we will find another chance to connect soon. Uh, Kristen, you've got a, a great podcast, great show. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.